0: text in 1st Timothy chapter 5 and at the beginning of our passage there in 1st Timothy chapter 6. It's really all about, if you'll notice with me, honoring one another in the household of God. If you weren't here with us last week, you want to go back and and listen to last week's message. But really that's what Paul is talking about. He's, he's talking about honoring the one another in the household of God. According to the Apostle Paul who wrote this very letter, from Macedonia towards the end of his incredible life and ministry. Personal, pastoral, and impartial respect is what he's getting at, which leads to admiration, it leads to loyalty, it leads to purity towards one another, regardless of age, and regardless of gender, and even regardless of office, is the rule for our relationships as family members of divine grace. In short, what we're talking about over these next several weeks is that we are to honor one another in the household of God. Now, notably, as you heard already read for you by our brother Cecil, it is interesting that the Apostle Paul dedicates an astonishing 14 verses out of the 113 verses that's dedicated in the book of First Timothy to the subject of proper care and honor of widows in the church. By my math, that's 12% of the letter of 1 Timothy is devoted to this teaching on caring for widows. That's not insignificant. It's actually pretty important. Listen, evidently, the subject of who is responsible and how one cares for widows was a hot topic in the first century. Now, you'll remember, of course, that the church's very first flash The very first conflict in the church was really related to the proper care of widows. Acts chapter 6, if you'll remember. Moreover, the Lord Jesus himself in Luke chapter 20, verse 47, warned his disciples against those who love to make a pretense, a show of their religion by long-winded prayers, and as he says, are scoundrels who devour widows' houses. Jesus was mindful of this particular point. Listen, much like in our own day, though exponentially more severe, I'm afraid, women who had lost their own husbands in death, and let's all face it, there's good reason why men tend to die sooner than women. If you think about it, we see these things flowing around social media on reasons why guys die sooner. It is not a new phenomenon, folks, but women whose husbands have died in the first century were a particularly vulnerable and at-risk population. And I think we're going to dig into some of the reason for that this morning. In a culture where there was virtually no social safety net, we need to understand that. There was no government assistance. There was no county office for the aging or for the orphaned there in the first century. Widows were very often left completely destitute and exposed to hardship see, women in the first century, generally speaking, worked in the home, raising children and tending to their families' daily needs. And so what were they to do and where were they to turn if they found themselves all alone due to the death of their spouse? Well, listen, what about those who are widows among us today? You know, times have certainly changed since the Apostle Paul's day in the first century, and praise God for it. We should be glad and grateful that there's been progress, certainly. Undoubtedly, social and economic conditions have improved dramatically for women over the past 2,000 years. Pensions exist now, and they didn't back then. 401ks exist now. Life insurance exists now. Social security payments, at least for now, exist But that certainly wasn't the case in the first century, and I think we need to remember that as we dig into the text this morning. And yet still, even today, listen, being widowed can be a lonely, fearful, and often paralyzing experience. And listen, I don't need to tell many of you sisters that today. You can testify to that experience of losing your spouse Did you know that the average age of a widow today is 59 years old? 59. The average woman is widowed at the age of 57. I was surprised to learn that this week. According to one source, about one half of women over 65 years of age have lost their spouses. And about two-thirds of those over 75 have lost their spouse. Consider that this year, 800,000 people are going to be widowed, and about 700,000 of them will be women. It's remarkable to think about. What's more, the average length of time that a woman lives beyond the death of her spouse is 14 years. 14 years. Imagine sharing a life with somebody for several decades and then living another decade or more longer without your spouse. That's what the experience is of so many. In our culture today, there are roughly 14 million widows in the United States. Four times as many widows as there are widowers or men who have lost their wives. According to one database, there are on average 40 widows for every one church in the United States. And in many churches, a large percentage of their membership is actually widows. Fear, loneliness, Financial vulnerability, physical discomfort and distress, even hunger at times, just to name a few, of the obvious concerns of a widow's daily experience. They never get away from it. Consider that upon the death of her spouse, a new widow typically loses 75% of her financial support base. That's why, according to the Social Security Administration office, the poverty rate among widows is three to four times higher than it is among elderly women who remain married. And listen, all of this today is in the most developed and the most economically prosperous country in the history of the world. Imagine then the scarcity and the sheer fear of a widow in Bible times. Or perhaps imagine a widow's world in the third world today. That's the realm we need to get our minds into to understand 1 Timothy chapter 5 beginning with verse 3. It's little wonder then why the scriptures more broadly and 1 Timothy chapter 5 specifically places such a high premium on the righteous obligation of the care of widows. Brian Croft, a contemporary pastor, In his great little book entitled, Caring for Widows, exhorts the church today to not allow those who suffer quietly to struggle alone. He says, there is an urgent and obvious obligation to honor widows who are truly widows in the church today. And he's absolutely right. On this point, understand that the proper care and concern for the weak and widows is a theme that is replete through the scriptures. For example, you know this passage, James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, If any of you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James says, if you claim to have faith, but you don't put feet to your faith, your faith is dead. He's absolutely right. At the heart of the Bible, in fact, the book of Psalms thumps with God's passionate concern for the plight of widows. There are too many passages that I could cite, but I'll just take you to a couple. Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6, which say this, father of the fatherless, And protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. In other words, God sees you. God sees your heartache and your hardship and he notices and he looks after you. Again, the compassionate of the Lord is proclaimed for those who are often marginalized and despised and often forgotten in Psalm 146, verses 7 and 8, where the Bible says, God executes justice for the oppressed, and He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. God will execute justice. Make no mistake about that. But listen, the reason why the Psalms, for example, proclaim so often God's steadfast love for widows and for the weak and vulnerable is because God's righteous compassion for them is codified in the Torah, the law of Moses. In fact, Exodus chapter 22 Verses 22 to 24 state this, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. You think God cares about the weak and the widow and the vulnerable? He absolutely does. The Lord's own honor and holiness, friends, is inextricably connected to His concern and compassion for the vulnerable, and it is to be reflected in His people's concern for the same. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18 declare, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. God notices what man does not notice. What man thinks is unimportant or irrelevant, God says is significant and precious to him. Deuteronomy 27, verse 19 again says, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Listen, if it is not clear enough already, the real reason why we in the church today should have a deep concern for widows and take pains to exercise proper care on their behalf is because God's Word readily commands it and God's own heart abundantly displays it. If we are to look like our God, we must love like He loves We must see how he sees. The God of the Bible notices and meets the needs of the lost, of the least, and the lonely. And praise God that he does, because such were us. The proper care of widows is a core concern for the church because it is a crucial demonstration of the gospel and of God's heart for the poor and the weak and the vulnerable. Caring for those who can't return the favor is the very essence of grace. It's the very fragrance of the gospel. Caring for those in distress is not an option for those who are committed to Christ. Caring for widows is not some marginal ministry in the church today. It is a core commitment for the church of Christ. We must, indeed we must, care for the widows among us. So look, when it comes to the question of who is responsible for the care of widows and generally how should we then respond to this sizable segment of vulnerable saints in our churches, there really is no better place to look than 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 3 and following. And friends, here this morning I want you to notice with me that the Apostle Paul is going to give us some inspired guidance for godly honor of gracious widows in the church. Paul is going to help us think through this important subject by classifying or categorizing widows into four specific groups. There are those who are true widows. There are those who are new widows, or I would say younger widows. There are those who are stable widows. And there are those who are self-indulgent widows. Four groups this morning that I'll help you understand how to relate to. And then depending upon the circumstances, because every family, every individual circumstances are a little bit different or unique, and the specific situation behind each particular widow's case, Paul then places these individuals, as we'll see this morning, in one of three different categories wherein lies the primary obligation for their care. Those four classes are the widows themselves, and then there are three areas of obligation That Paul has right here in 1 Timothy chapter 5. There are widows with family obligations. There are widows with church obligations. And there are widows with personal obligations to provide for themselves. Because they have an opportunity or an ability to do so. In essence, the bottom line for Paul is that true godliness demands that somebody bears responsibility to help provide and care for widows within God's house. It's someone's responsibility. And it's probably not just one person's responsibility. This, he shows us, is pleasing and honoring to the Lord. In effect, the wisdom and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ grants us even a vision to see, a window to see, and a willingness to perform our necessary obligations to care for widows among us even today. You see, a spiritual gospel bring social obligations we preach no social gospel here at trinity we preach a spiritual gospel but a spiritual gospel does bear social obligations and responsibilities they're not mutually exclusive so today's key theme if you want to write down anything write down this that the proper care of widows is somebody's responsibility depending upon their situation and their specific circumstances The church's obligation, note carefully, is to care for those who are truly widows, not necessarily to care equally for each widow without respect or distinction. That's effectively what we're going to see here in 1 Timothy chapter 5 this morning. So let's look at the text together. Now, I take 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 3 to be Paul's introductory statement to the passage, of course, on the topic of caring for widows. Notice With me in the text, Paul simply says, honor widows who are truly widows. And then if you'll allow your eyes to glance down to the last verse of this passage, verse 16, we'll see that Paul will summarize his main point again with a similar statement. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Paul obviously has a word about widow care in the household of Christ, and that's a specific and important uh, thing to note. Honor widows who are truly widows in the house of God. Now, before we begin, By looking at family obligations with regard to the care of widows, I think it's important to step back and state again what Paul means, in fact, by the term honor. We looked at this briefly even last Sunday morning. The verb honor, a Greek word here, tamao, is a second person present imperative. Second person present imperative. In other words, it's a command for all of us continually. That's the language behind the word. Paul is saying essentially each of you should look to continually honor those who are genuinely widows among you. That's effectively what Paul is stating here in the passage. The word honor in context, I believe, very clearly means two things. It has a double meaning in a sense. On the one hand, to honor surely means what we often mean by saying giving proper attention to something, giving proper recognition or Uh, paying uh, special appreciation to someone. There's clearly the idea of honoring in that sense. But beyond this, this passage also, I think, very clearly implies a sort of material support, a sort of practical care that is owed or honor in that sense to those who are truly widows. We are to see them and we are to support them in some way. Those both distinctions, I think, are significant. Throughout the passage, Paul, em, Paul's emphasis on certain provisions being made for widows clearly establishes that we can and should think of the word honor in the sense of how we use the term honorarium today. An honorarium, of course, is a pledge or an expression of practical support for a true service that has been rendered. You give an honorarium when somebody comes to speak. That's the idea behind the word here. In this way, the old adage, I think, is true. Caring really is sharing. Caring is sharing. That's what Paul has in mind. Let me give you the first rule here this morning, and it's the rule that Paul says very clearly here that the Bible, when it comes to proper care of widows, family is to come first. Family comes first in the proper care of widows. We might say it this way, that family is the front line of practical care and support for widows even among God's household. Family comes first. It is the family's obligation in Christ to care for their own aging relatives and especially for widows. Again, the church may, in fact, may have an obligation and again, I think it would be wise to rightly read this passage in light of changing cultures, changing economics, changing times. I think that's wise and righteous to do. But according to this text, the very first obligation that I think is a trans-temporal obligation, in other words, it, it encompasses all times and all places, is that the first line of defense for a widow is her family. Make no bones about it. That's the rule rooted in God's holy word. Notice that Paul bases this house rule on the fact that not all widows are on an equal footing. And I think that's also important to note. That is, some on account of having able, ample, and available relatives such as children and grandchildren have a more stable situation and are therefore not true widows. That's why I choose the The moniker or the name stable widows for this first category. Paul states in verse 4, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Notice the condition. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them step up to the plate There is something pretty obvious, pretty intuitive, and frankly natural about Paul's instructions here in this passage. This is what has typically been the practice in various cultures throughout human history until relatively recent times. It is a relatively recent and Western notion to place our aging relatives and family members in nursing homes. And I'm going to say this a few times this morning. I am not in any way saying that it is always inappropriate for your loved one to go into a nursing home. That is not what I'm saying. That's not always the case. But that should not be the quick and the simple solution where you have the opportunity and the means to do something else. I think that's part of what Paul is saying here. In fact, in many other cultures and places, you will not—you'll actually be hard-pressed to find nursing homes. But in America, you can find them on every other street. I wonder why that is. See, Paul's severe words in verses seven and eight that Timothy should command these things as well, that so that they, and in my view, it really could be understood two ways. They meaning professing children, And grandchildren may be without reproach or that widows themselves might be without being despised. I I take the former view that professing Christian children and grandchildren might be above reproach without reproach because they care for their family members. But verse 8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now a whole sermon could be devoted to that very line of text, but Paul is at least saying that it is sinful and in fact shameful to mishandle your relatives, to just simply cast them aside. It is sinful and shameful at the very least. This might sound harsh, but actually it was standard practice in ancient times. The Roman statesman Cicero said if every man, he says every man should take care of his own family. And he was a pagan. The glory of the Roman Empire was due in large part built on the strength of the Roman family. In fact it was Greek law even up to and including the time of the Apostle Paul. That sons and daughters were morally and even legally obliged to support their aging parents. According to William Barclay's commentary. So to Paul, for a Christian to not care for a, an, a widowed, a mother who is now widowed, was a contradiction in terms. This was a public embarrassment of biblical and unacceptable proportions. That's part of the, the punch behind Paul's words here. Godliness in God's house demands that professing Christians insofar, listen to me carefully, as they are physically and medically, and even now in our culture, geographically able, we must care for our vulnerable parents. We must do that. It is a representation of the profession of faith that we maintain. By the way, this is precisely, and I am so glad for this, this is precisely what we see taking place In several of our families right here at Trinity. We have living testimonies. Walking among us. Of 1 Timothy chapter 5. And praise God for it. While medically or even geographically. It might not be feasible at all times. To bring an elderly parent or grandparent. Into one's own home. The general rule of thumb. Is the obligation of care. Is the responsibility of a widow's children. Or relatives. Again, you can't speak about every particular circumstance because every circumstance is a little bit different. The medical needs, the economic needs, they're all a little bit different. Through such practical support, we make some return for those who have invested so much in our own lives. Some of you sitting here this morning again are a living embodiment of godliness on this point, and we thank you and esteem you highly for it. But let me just say, pastorally, this also means that as you age or as your parents age, you need to be asking questions like, what does this mean for where we live? What does this mean for how we live? What does this mean for what kind of job that I take? There should be some forethought and foresight about how we honor the Lord as we honor our mothers and fathers. Simply put, a stable widow should receive routine support and care from her own family. But what about when the family and that support is not available or non-existent? What about those circumstances? Well, this carries us on ahead to the second major category, what I call this morning a church's obligation, a spiritual family's obligation to care for those who are truly widows. Well, again, according to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and in the absence of any real social safety net and the support system of one's own relatives, true widows ought to be able to expect practical honor and reasonable support from their spiritual family in a local church. However, this also, Paul adds, is under certain valid conditions. Observe with me how Paul enumerates at least three specific qualifications for the practical support of widows in verses 9 and 10. And added to this are several statements that Paul makes just a few verses earlier in chapter 5 verse 5 and also verse 6. Let's start there. She who is truly a widow, left, notice, all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But, notice verse 6, She who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Let a widow be enrolled if she, this is verse 9, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Let me pause for just a moment and understand, let me get your attention, understand something clearly. And this probably isn't without controversy, but I'm going to say it boldly. Understand that the church is under no enduring obligation to provide practical support to self-indulgent widows. The church is not responsible for every widow in the world. That's not Paul's point. This is the second of the four kinds of widows Paul is mentioning here in 1 Timothy chapter 5. You see, stable widows have their families. True widows have the church. But self-indulgent widows have had their fun. That's part of what Paul is getting at here. That sounds harsh, friends, I realize. But remember, Paul is not talking about widow care generally. He's talking about widow care specifically in the household of God. He's talking about the rules of God's house. And by the way, also listen carefully. I do not believe for a moment this verse prohibits us as a church from displaying strategic Christ-like compassion to self-indulgent widows. Where we can, we should with all joy. Because it might just be the means that God redeems them. That he opens their heart and their understanding to the fact that somebody loves them. But Paul is saying the church is not obligated to provide that same care and support for them. Paul's point is the church isn't obligated to provide sustained support to self-indulgent widows. The self-indulgent widow who has lived in the lap of luxury and lived for worldly pleasure is quite possibly and even quite likely not a part of Christ's spiritual family and therefore not obliged to practical support in the church. The church is not a welfare society. It is a spiritual house and every family is on a budget. That's part of Paul's point. On the other hand, notice that the church does have, and this is where we have to contextually apply and understand things, the church does have an enduring obligation which takes godly discernment and real wisdom to work out contextually regarding those who are truly widows. But notice carefully that a true widow... Paul defines, a true widow is one who is both devoted to God and is devoid of practical support apart from the church. Do you catch that? A true widow is one who is devoted to God and is devoid or absent of support outside of the church. Paul says here that such a widow has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Verse 5. Now, some commentators suggest, we don't know this to be certain, that these widows that Paul has in mind evidently serve some formal ministry in the early church. To be on the widow's role was not merely a handout, it was a place of responsibility. And I think that's also important to bear in mind. It's certainly possible that that's the case. The implication of verses 9 and following is that there was, in fact, a widow's role in Ephesus. There was a list, some registry, in fact. And those who are eligible for practical support were on it. But there were certain qualifications, and Paul gets at those here. Again, not every widow was eligible for such a list. Quite obviously, the self-indulgent widow was not eligible for the widow's role. She was not a part of God's family. Secondly, stable widows, that is widows who were supported by children or could be supported by children and grandchildren were not evidently put on the widow's role. Paul says later in verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let not the church be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. The church with limited resources financially needed to maintain a sharp and narrow focus on who was eligible and for whom they were obligated. Only true widows met these qualifications. Only true widows then demanded regular, tangible support. Now, in addition to her devotion to God and her lack of apparent options elsewhere, notice three things about these true widows in order to be qualified. Firstly, she was not less than 60 years of age. Not less than 60 years old, Paul says. Now that might seem quite young to many of us, and it is from one perspective, but we need to keep in mind that life expectancy in the very first century was likely not much older than 60 years of age. The point here, I believe, is that the church was not to be saddled with long-term obligations, even towards the most godly of women. This was not a long-term contract. She was not to be less than sixty years of age. Secondly, she had to have been faithful to her husband over the course of her marriage. Now friends, this is similar language to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2. And likely does not mean that a widow would have been ineligible if she was married multiple times, but rather she had displayed a measure of faithfulness to the man that she loved and was married to. She was faithful at home. And then third, she had also to have a reputation of good works. Now these good works are further enumerated in verse 10 by Paul. Look at the text with me. As Paul says that she has displayed good works in the form of raising a family. Showing hospitality, serving humbly, caring sacrificially, and living devotedly to the Lord. This is somewhat of a composite picture of a godly widow who had displayed good works. Such a widow clearly had a heart for Christ and deserved support from her spiritual family in the church. This most likely, again, was not simply a handout In all likelihood, it was a mutually beneficial arrangement, a spiritual and social contract between an eligible widow and her faithful local church. If qualified, these widows would give their time to prayer and to practical support of ministry, of good works, and in return, they received tangible support practically from the church. Of course, friends, careful thought and prudent wisdom is required To apply this passage to our own setting today. Suffice it to say that Paul wanted to press home. That the church was spiritually responsible. To provide practical care for those. Who had nowhere else to turn. That's part of what Paul is saying. This evidently was an issue that Timothy needed to address urgently there in Ephesus. And so he spent 12% of his letter writing about it. What might this look like? For us at Trinity today. Well, practically speaking, it probably does look a little bit different than whatever system or official role was there employed in Ephesus. Once again, there was no social security administration in the first century. There was no social safety net at that time outside of one's family, and we've already talked about them. There was also limited opportunity for employment for women in the first century. And so the church was obliged to step up because many of these widows had literally nowhere else to turn. So stepping up to spiritual and practical obligations today as a church, I believe takes both formal and informal shape, formal and informal shape, informally, or maybe unofficially, you might say this could take the shape of church families adopting a widow in the house of God. This happens so frequently, it's almost an illustration without statement that many of you take widows who have nowhere to turn at the holidays and you bring them into your home and you share meals with them and you share life with them and that's such a beautiful embodiment of the principle at play right here in 1 Timothy chapter 5. But honoring widows could also take the form of going to rake leaves at their home, or perhaps shoveling snow and helping with groceries, or shuttling somebody who can't drive any longer from place to place or to God's house at first. There are, there's no shortage of specific and yet informal suggestions for how we can apply this text to our lives as church members. But effective God-honoring widow care can also take the place through formalized mean such as a church's benevolence fund, or perhaps even through the establishment of a widow's fund to help with more sizable and practical needs. See, over the years, now almost 20 years in the making, I've had a front row seat to see specific needs met by local boards of deacons and elders through church's benevolence funds. In fact, on this very Sunday, when we share communion together, the first Sunday of each month, many of you set aside an additional sum of money and you give to the Benevolence Fund. Why? So that we can care well for those in need among us. Those are specific ways that we work out 1 Timothy chapter 5 as a church fellowship together. There are countless many other ways that we could collectively work together to meet the needs of those who are truly widows in the church, visiting the lonely and the sick, sending cards, helping with practical needs around the house. Those who are devoted to Christ and devoid of other means of support ought to be able to depend upon the spiritual support of sons and daughters in the church. This sort of gospel-enabled, gospel-shaped love and compassion is precisely what Paul wanted Timothy to ensure was happening there in Ephesus. And I'm very glad to see and to say that it's happening so often here at Trinity Bible Fellowship Church. Paul's words in Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 come to my mind. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Well, there is just one final obligation, and therefore one remaining classification of widows that we need to touch on briefly here this morning before we wrap up. We've noted already the family's obligation to care for those who are stable widows, as well as the church's obligation to care for those who are true widows. And precluded from that is at least one further class, and that is the self-indulgent widow. But the careful reader will notice there's still one class left. And that's the group of people that we've called this morning new or younger widows. In addition to the true and the stable and the self-indulgent widow, Paul has some guidance in verses 11 to 15 for those who find themselves at a younger age in life in a very desperate place as a widow. In effect, Paul advises that younger widows have a sort of personal obligation for themselves in a general way, and he says that they should remarry. Let's look again here at what he says at the beginning in verse 11. Paul says, but refuse, and there's no way to soften his statement, nor should we try to. He is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. These verses, for so many people, are hard to hear. And for so many preachers, they're hard to preach. Believe me, it's been a long week. It's helpful, though, to bear in mind that Paul is very likely addressing a real-life issue with younger widows there in Ephesus in Timothy's time. There was a particular backdrop to what Paul was addressing head-on. See, it's possible, and I think even likely, that some of the false teaching and the deviant practices were finding a receptive audience, particularly among younger widows there in Ephesus. Timothy's task, in part, was to, not, to nip that nonsense in the bud. He was to address it head on. Now further, I tend to side with the view expressed in the ESV commentary, which was written in part by Denny Burke. And I want to read just a, a short excerpt from it. He says, those widows who have the opportunity to remarry should pursue marriage. A younger woman is more likely to feel the desire to be married again. Paul says of them that their passions may draw them away from Christ. That when they marry, then they incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. And let me just say, that sounds so sharp. It really does. But he goes on, he says, This does not mean that widows are consigned to hell, as if their remarriage were tantamount to apostasy. For the word faith can also be translated a pledge. A pledge. And I think it's translated that way in the New American Standard Bible, by the way. The women on the widow's roll apparently had made a vow never to remarry again. A vow that if abandoned, that they would have banned it if they decide to, to remarry The word translated condemnation is applied elsewhere to believers in the sense of mere judgment. In James chapter 3 verse 1. Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, because you know you'll be judged with a stricter judgment. And in that context, the idea is that of a censure. Not condemnation into hell, but a a censure even, an embarrassment. When widows remarry after pledging not to do so... They have their own home to care for and can no longer fulfill their ministry to which they had committed themselves. Thus, it is better for Paul for such younger women not to be placed on the list in the first place. And I think that's a very helpful way of unpacking what so many people get tied up into knots in this particular passage. But in any case, and I'm almost finished here today, in any case, Paul's main point isn't that he's meddling in the affairs of a woman's business about marrying or not marrying. Rather, the whole point of the passage is the proper care for widows in the church, clarifying who is responsible and who is eligible for practical support in a context where the resources were very scarcely limited. What does godliness demand? Well, Paul says that family members are responsible to care generally speaking for the support of those who are their own family and churches are responsible to care generally speaking for those who are true widows and those who are younger younger widows generally speaking ought to remarry for a variety of reasons not least of which is so that they do not become an unnecessary burden upon the church so make no mistake about it friends the free offer of the gospel of grace brings clear obligations, serious responsibilities, and abundant resources for our growth and godliness here in God's house. And we would do well to not resort to our own opinions, our own devices, or our own conclusions, but to open the book and live biblically. Amen? Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Almighty God and Father, Lord, we had asked, and I believe you've been faithful to give us the grace to hear a passage that indeed is at times and in places hard to hear, and it's also a bit difficult to to translate in the sense of context. So Lord, I pray that all of these words, Lord, have been faithful both to you and you firstly, but also faithful to the flock of God. Lord, I would never want to steer anyone in the wrong direction. So, Father, I pray that you would give us grace to work out practically and humbly, but also boldly and courageously what it looks like for us to honor each other in this house. Because there is a responsibility. No one should be cast aside or left destitute. Father, thank you for your spirit giving us grace here at Trinity to to not be perfect in this way, but to, to really try to be faithful here. We are so humbled and grateful by what you're doing. And we would pray for more of the grace of the Spirit to continue on in the days and years to come. Father, thank you for your word. We esteem it and we desire to obey it, for we ask it in Jesus' name.